welcome to the podcast where together, every Monday, we explore hospitality in its very broader sense. From culture and cooking, cocktails and coffee, nutrition and farming, politics and animal welfare, organic and sustainability, family and business, entrepreneurship, and much, much more. Come and learn with me, Mark Cribb, about where our food and our drink comes from and the businesses and more importantly the human beings that thrive on where we decide to spend our time and our money. Sign up to our weekly newsletter at humansofhospitality.co.uk and hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice. Hi and welcome to this week's episode. I'm recording this on Sunday the 11th of October and the world of hospitality is still being thrown to the wolves. Unnecessarily so in my personal opinion. We now have the insane situation in Scotland where you can go out and enjoy some lunch but should you wish to have a glass of wine with it you'll need to sit outdoors. And if you want to eat dinner, no chance. Closed by 6pm. Rumours are that parts of England could be heading the same way, yet the evidence still strongly demonstrates that transmission rates in hospitality venues are negligible and everyone working in that sector is still doing such a great job in keeping people safe as we always have done. We should be being held up as an example for others. Look how many tens of millions of people have been served by hospitality and look how few transmissions there have been. But instead, I believe criminally, the government are doing quite the opposite, throwing hospitality under the bus and blaming us for high transmission rates, whilst the evidence shows that people are transmitting at home or in private parties and still even at care homes, it's all too easy to blame our sociable sector. The cancel the curfew campaign means that the government have been under a tsunami of feedback from the industry and I cannot believe that they are unaware of the catastrophic impact that they are having on our sector. And I think many of the public are on our side and those that are following the data are now losing trust and faith in the government's erratic rules and changes that seem to follow such little logic. Maybe enough Conservative MPs will rebel and vote for change. I've certainly been speaking with my local MP regularly to give feedback on the illogical and disproportionate impact they are having on an industry that I love so much. So sign up, cancel the curfew, go and find it online, share it, speak to your MP. Let's see if we can get this sorted. Anyway, frankly, talking about it is becoming tedious and I want you to enjoy the next hour. So let's move away from banging our heads against a brick wall and go on a 60 minute learning adventure. Finally, we are doing a sustainability episode. And I say finally because regular listeners will know that sustainability comes up a lot in my conversations when we think about farming and plant-based diets and the impact on the environment of what we eat and what we drink. But what I'd not really touched on thus far was the sustainability deep-rooted into the actual design of venues and the business itself. Because surely it all starts there. If the restaurant itself is smashing its way through unnecessary fossil fuels or using poisonous materials or chopping down virgin rainforest to make the furniture, then clearly that would be pretty outrageous. So David Chenery, today's guest, has been deeply buried in cogitating on what sustainable design means for a number of, of years. David's not an activist, but he wants to find a way to live on planet Earth and ideally leave it better, or at the very least, 
not make it worse. A goal I share and admire and consider on a frequent basis. David has spent a number of years as an interior architect and design consultant at Object Space Place and has had a career specialising in commercial interiors in a varied range of international and UK-based retail stores, hair salons, restaurant concepts and luxury fashion department stores. But... More recently, he's doubled down and focused on sustainable hospitality and what that might mean. David's been working on a restorative restaurant framework built on the principles of a circular economy and designing with end of life in mind. Now, within that are some fascinating perspectives, and I'm confident you're going to enjoy this chat, and it's certainly going to get you to think. I'm hoping that most people who listen regularly to this podcast have an interest in food and drink, and thus an interest in its provenance, and are more likely to be interested in real food rather than processed food. And if we care so much about where our food comes from, we should also care about our impact on the environment. As David says, if we're happy to invest in free-range eggs, we should also probably be willing to pay for FFC FSC accredited wooden furniture, pay a little bit more, have far less of a detrimental impact on the planet. Kind of makes sense. So we chat about the importance of the stories of sustainability or the accreditation of sustainability and how for me personally in an industry where we are so used to chatting to customers about the journey of their food or their drink, who produced it or caught it or made it, how many miles has it travelled, naturally extending that to where the recycled bar top might have come from or how the furniture has been reclaimed from an old church or school rather than ending up in landfill feels like an easy extension of what we do. So I hope you enjoy the conversation and as always if you do can I please ask for a couple of very quick favours. Firstly pick up the device you're listening on, scroll down to the review section hit five stars and subscribe. And if you can, even leave just a few words. Now, this is mutually beneficial. It's a pretty time-consuming process putting together a weekly podcast. But your positive reviews make it much easier for me to attract better guests to the show. That way, we both get to enjoy the conversations and the insights more. And if you're feeling really flush, which I appreciate in the world of hospitality right now, is pretty bloody unlikely, then you can also leave a donation via the website by clicking on the Patreon page or by going to paypal.me forward slash markcrib and donating anything you fancy quickly and easily there. I'll use the cash to travel the country finding awesome guests to chat to. And if you don't, I'll fill the podcast with irritating adverts and then you'll be sorry. Okay, I'm just kidding. You can, of course, just sit back and enjoy the show. Right, enough of my waffle, let's head over and chat to David. Enjoy. David Chenery, welcome to uh, the podcast, hugely appreciated. Thank you for taking the time to join us and you've come to me in, in sunny Bournemouth, a town I understand you actually know reasonably well. I do, it's fun to be back. It must be a good 10, 15 years since my parents moved away. This is where I grew up in Bournemouth, so it feels kind of familiar and strange all at the same time to be sitting on the beach talking to you yeah and I've well, rudely, next to the beach yeah I've rudely sat you should be facing the ocean I've realized because uh, it's yeah, absolutely but, fine uh, I didn't want to be looking at my kitchen because I'd end up standing up and getting involved in some way so now you get to look at the kitchen makes sense and I get to look at the so ocean. I can just make some faces and yeah. look all worried that they're doing something wrong and you can run over yeah, well you can at least look out. angry when they keep shouting in the background and I'm, after I've, t- I've turned the music off at least but unfortunately yeah I can't get them to uh, to start chatting so uh, 
Although you're from Bournemouth, how long ago was it you've left? Because you've not been to this restaurant before, have you? Outrageously. I have not. <laughs> I, I apologise deeply. Um, I left, I'm going to say about 2000, went to uni in Brighton and then gravitated to the bright lights of London where the work is. Yeah, that's what happens, isn't it? Okay, well, I can forgive you for that because we weren't here in uh, in 2000. I think it was 2005, something like that. So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll forgive you. Um, I listened to a couple of other podcasts you've done yesterday. You made me laugh out loud and I freaked a guy out. I was actually out for a run and I ran past this this guy. I didn't notice him, but he was just pruning his bush in his drive. And I, I think you said something along the lines of a client interested in sustainability is generally not an arsehole, which I just thought was a great strap yeah, line. It's and, and I go forward. So I thought at the very least, you're interested in sustainability. I'm interested in sustainability. We can pretty much guarantee that for the next hour, people can listen to a conversation that's not between a couple of arseholes. Let's hope. Yeah. Let's hope. Is that, is that Absolutely. Reasonable? He looked at me in shock when he turned around because I, I I looked like a loon as I was jogging down the road laughing to myself but uh, yeah thank you um, so we're gonna have a good chat about sustainability and, and, and what I was interested in and, and having known a little bit about your story so you're from Object Space Place an interior architecture company fundamentally but now very much right at the top of your website it says carefully crafted sustainable designs and I know you're you're interested in hospitality and, and your sort of niche has evolved over time but I was interested what that word sustainability which is now key at what point did you add that to your website is that very it's, recently it's fascinating isn't it um I think we have always cared about doing things the right way I mean genuinely having integrity I mean, my definition of integrity is doing the right thing when no one's looking. So, you know, in our office, Brenda, my business partner and I, will have a conversation about doing something. And if we just don't think it feels right, you know, either treating someone some way or cutting a corner somewhere, we just you just don't do it, you know. And sustainability is is part of that piece, I think. Um, but oh, maybe over the last three or four years, we never felt that we could put it out there and say, hey, we're sustainable designers. Because I think a bit like when you meet someone who's a vegan there can be quite strong feelings around people who are to talk about sustainability. Um, you know, are you sustainable enough? Are you vegan enough? Are those leather shoes? Oh, I don't know. I don't know if that counts. And so we, I wouldn't say we hid it, but we, we wanted to pursue an agenda of sustainability where we were learning, we were developing our skills, we were finding out and researching what we could. And then we wanted to try and convince and adjust and help our current clients and our current client mix to move them towards being more sustainable. And that is a terrible idea because unless someone comes to you with an understanding of the value and the need to think sustainably, most hospitality or design projects, they're so challenging in themselves. The, the commercial reality, the timing pressures, the, the desire to be successful in a massively competitive market, that the sustainability pieces can often be seen as a nice to have and they can get kicked out you know you've got time pressures you've got to do it in a week let's find some more chairs right let's go online on the internet what can we buy can they be here tomorrow um and that that yeah was just was kind of really frustrating for us so i think at the beginning of this year we just thought okay right sod it this isn't enough we want to go all out and talk about sustainable hospitality design we want to you know we love the hospitality industry we love creating designs to set the stage for experiences and then you get a depth of experience in hospitality you don't get in retail and things like that and we love that world and we can see that the design for hospitality is just not sustainable enough at the moment for, for so many reasons that we can that we can dig into and we wanted to 
be the ones to try and make that change. Um, so we've just thought, right, we need to do all the research we can. How can we change this? How can we make things more sustainable? Um, and that involves us also sticking our heads above the parapet and saying, right, we are involved in sustainable design. That's mm. what we do. And we will hold ourselves to account in everything we do to make sure we can deliver that, which is, to be honest, a really interesting journey for us because we're, you know, every day's a school day. We're, we're learning, we're pushing ourselves, we're trying to find the next level, trying to find what actually, what actually constitutes sustainability because there are many, many different ways of looking at that. I mean, in, in simplest terms, I guess for me, sustainability boils down to us doing things that mean tomorrow we can keep on doing those things whether that's about where you source your food from how you treat other human beings how you build spaces with natural resources so we literally need to create systems whereby they can sustain themselves um that's a very long answer to your yeah, question. Well, it wasn't a date, was it? You could have said the 1st of February, Mark, but that would have been a very dull answer. <laughs> so actually, it was much better that, that you expanded it. And, and that was, I suppose, my point, because you're now a niche within a niche within a niche. And it's a very brave yes. thing to do, because lots of people are interested in sustainability. Mm. Lots of restaurants, you know, there are a couple, you know, Silo obviously sort yes. of hung its hat on that. Locally, we've got, um, I think it's called the Greenhouse Hotel. Um, so some people go out and say, right, you know, we're all about sustainability. And, and I've always been very careful to say, you know, we absolutely should focus on on everything we can but fundamentally we are you know we are having a, a negative impact in some way almost yeah. by our pure existence just the fact that I sell coffee that you know somehow has to be transported around the yes. world for example so although we will do everything we possibly can and for me that's about integrity and looking people in the eye and saying that we have decided what compromises to be made fundamentally unless you are a a vegan sort of sat at home never going out without the lights on it's very hard to see how you're not having some sort of impact so for you to to put that on the front of your website presumably that, therefore you you must turn certain clients away now what's what's the definition of sustainability for uh, you yeah i think it's really interesting i do think i mean i am not an activist i am not i mean i am a people person i i want to build bridges with people and i want to bring people on a journey with us um i think it's important that that everyone is on a journey you know there are people I talk to in the last six months there are people who are way ahead of me in terms of their own journey and knowledge around sustainability chefs who are trying to build completely circular restaurants to the point where they want to process the human waste coming out of toilets and turn that into drinking water within their own footprint of a you know like seriously impressive it's quite a brave stuff. thing to put on your menu isn't it well, recycled yeah, toilet water um, yeah I don't, he hasn't done it yet so okay. um, but we'll see but there's some really you know, impressive people and there's some real firebrands and activists in there and for me I, I'm certainly not at a point where I would be preaching to anyone but I, I would like to think that we can help people along that journey and, and really sustainability is a part of someone acting with integrity um, yes there are increasingly challenging conversations where someone says you know because we will, we will discuss sustainability as one of the first things when we're talking to someone and some people will be honest and say I want to be sustainable as long as it doesn't cost me anything but, and, and that's a really challenging place to be. Um, and it's natural because we want to carry on business as usual because it's hard. Running a restaurant, being successful, doing all of that stuff is hard alone. To do this extra thing, this sustainable thing, or what's seen as extra, um, adds an extra burden. And if it's going to cost more money, that's, you know, the margins in hospitality are not awesome, um, but, you know, mainly because there's so much competition. Um, but people, people are scared to do that. Um, 
the reality is it doesn't have to cost more money to be sustainable. Um, but if you get drawn into a, an argument around around money and whether money is going to be the be-all and end-all of the project, it's very difficult to put sustainability at the heart of that project. So yes, there are conversations we have with people where it's clear that they are not not interested at all in that. And mm. therefore, there are a lot of other good designers out there um, yeah. that they can go and talk to. But we've got a mission. We are trying to move forward and you know, we need people that can, can see that and buy into that. And, and yeah, and, that. I, and I love the fact that you're you're brave enough to do that and, and fortune favours the brave eventually, but it's there can be a time lag, I suppose, isn't it, between putting your head above the parapet and saying, okay, we are going to stand for this and, and enough people yeah. joining the movement to support you, I guess. It's true. I mean, we, we've only actually, we've doubled down on that niche even further during COVID. I mean, naturally, um, we are in the business of designing physical spaces for people to socialize in. Um, coronavirus is not super helpful um, with that. So given that, like most places, our turnover dropped off a cliff in March, you know, down 50, 75% of what it should be. Well, what have we got to lose? Yeah, uh, we've got nothing to lose. And uh, we want to we wanna do this in the right way and build back in the right way. Um, and be as helpful as we can to the industry. You know, there's going to be a lot of opportunities coming out of this once we get through the next 6, 12, 18 months of, of pain. Um, and for us, it's really important. Yeah, we do that. We do that in the right way. Because yeah. um, business as usual isn't just isn't good enough, yeah. unfortunately. And, and we'll touch on that because I do agree there will be a lot of opportunities, particularly around uh, people acquiring existing restaurants. But, but we'll, we'll touch on that in a minute. But I think you made a very good point in something else I was listening to, which is around sort of, you know, lots of restaurants care about the provenance of the food they buy, don't they? So And, and they will care about that often from a, an ethical perspective. So you'd like to think most decent restaurants in the UK, even if you make the decision to sell beef that hopefully you're not sort of flying your beef over from from argentina and you know these these massive kind of uh, ranches out there where they're cutting down the amazon and with a bit of luck you're supporting your local butcher and if you could just have the same perspective when you're looking at furniture i've heard again you talk about you know vinyl stickers might be 30 percent more expensive if they're made you know in an environmentally conscious way but actually they're only a couple of quid anyway so you just want people yeah. to, to to think in the same way as you would source your menu and that's a decent that's a decent client base there isn't it it should be i mean it's it, it comes out of convenience in many ways or a kind of apathy or lack of knowledge isn't it i mean you as a, most restaurants if they are chef led or most people care about food so it's natural that they understand the quality the importance of sourcing i say natural there are many that don't but still you know you don't sell um eggs from you know use eggs from caged hens you use free range though they're more expensive um but you wouldn't think of doing that if you care about food but you'll use plywood that isn't FSC, so it's not come from a managed timber source. You'll get um, a bit of furniture. Um, you know, oh, those chairs are cheap. They're only 20 quid. Get them off Amazon. Well, where's it made? What's it come from? Wh what are those materials? So, so the same thinking applies to that. Um, but the reality is it's harder because the systems are set up right now to deliver cheaper products and materials to people that need them as quickly as possible. So the, the challenge we know we're going to face is to develop um, new systems with the right kinds of suppliers that can create sustainably sourced environments and interiors. Mm. Uh, and, and we know that that actually means we need to move towards ideas of a circular economy, um, which is something we discovered about six months ago. When we started the journey into sustainability, we were looking at different assessment systems. The question is, how do you, how do you actually 
make sure that this is real how are you really being sustainable rather than saying oh yeah i got this chair from a local church so therefore this is sustainable okay well how do we measure or test that and we looked into various um, assessment systems so there's a really good one called scar ska which is really super well suited to fit outs and refurbishment because you can adjust the scope depending on if you're doing small works or big works um and that's really good you can get bronze silver and gold um but the question is well what is gold is is gold enough is that actually going to mean the planet's okay if everyone does scar gold? Um, similarly, you get the quantitative measuring systems like carbon footprint. Everyone kind of understands that a bit more. You know, carbon, bigger number, bad. Smaller number or zero, good. And we know that greenhouse gas emission is a massive problem. We're trying to get down to net zero by 2050 to avoid climate change. But again, if we get carbon emissions down to zero, is that enough? Is that is that enough? To me, it seems oversimplified. It's a bit like saying, if I want to have a healthy lifestyle, I should have a calorie-controlled diet. Right, well, if I, if I only eat 1,000 calories, but it's processed burgers and chocolate, and I don't do any exercise, I will probably lose weight, but I will not have a healthy lifestyle. And similarly, you can reduce your carbon, but, you know, treat your staff badly you know have all kind of vocs and chemicals in the material that, that you're using on the site so it, so it becomes a broader question so what this led us to is and those those are both generally useful what we consider those kind of base camp up the mountain of sustainability we discovered um circular economy and i don't know if you know much about the principles but it took me about three books to get my head around exactly what it means but effectively it's looking at how we can design out waste how we can remove and avoid pollution and how we can keep natural resources at their highest level in what's called the value chain. So for example, last year, or oh, was it 2018, 100 billion tons of natural resources were taken out of the ground by human beings. And of that, only eight or 9% have been kept in what we'd call a circular system, i.e. still being used at the level they're extracted. The other 90-odd billion tonnes of, of resources head down the value chain from being, you know, stone into rubble, into aggregate in the road, into, you know, landfill or something like that. And that's actually the problem, is we need to move from this linear economy of take, make, waste to a circular economy where we can actually keep these cycles um, of, of resources and energy going through the system at a much higher level. So we are trying to create a design framework that can deliver that, mm. which we've called the restorative restaurant. Um, and I reckon, I reckon it will be the project for the rest of our working lives. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest, I think there's a lot to be done there. Um, hopefully that makes sense. It does, yeah, yeah. Well, what's sense. impressive is you read three books and managed to summarise it in 90 seconds, <laughs> David, and you can answer a question <laughs> longly as well. So that was particularly uh, impressive. But before we talk about the, um, the restorative restaurant, we'll, we'll go into that in a little bit more detail. Just specifically around hospitality then, do, do you think we are particularly bad at this you know have we got a sustainability problem with regard to restaurant design i suppose and how they're built and, and if so why is that that's a very interesting question um do i think hospitality a sustainability problem yes and no i think i mean you could look at several examples of people doing great things i'm sure the industry as a whole is better than it was maybe 10 years ago I and mean, i look to 
the Sustainable Restaurant Association and what they've been doing. You know, Andrew Stephen and the, the team there do do great work in kind of pushing this agenda. There's more people joining all the time. Clearly, COVID is going to be an issue to to this agenda and, and people investing time and money, resources into making it happen. But but I'd like I'd like to think it was getting better. Um, but I, th- I think there's I I always the reason I like hospitality. And I think that it has a chance to have a big impact on the sustainability conversation is because when you really dig into what the point of being sustainable is, is because we want to maintain the life we have and human beings. It's about human beings. And hospitality is a people business. It's not a food business, I don't think. People that really care about hospitality are good people that want to be with other people. You know, I always argue that hospitality is the act of inviting someone into your home and cooking them a meal but it is not the meal or your home it's the manner of the invitation that is the hospitality and i think because hospitality people care about people there is a selflessness in that act that should tie in very well with an attitude towards sustainability um so i'm i'm really hopeful that we can make a big change within the industry and help people come along on this journey with us to make things more sustainable mm. no, i think you're right and i think it goes back to you saying that you know people who work or people who are interested in sustainability uh, are probably not arseholes often yeah, it's and it's probably the same in hospitality yeah but yeah exactly and it's the same for most people who work in hospitality i think in, you know to, to a lot of people hospitality is a reflex that sort of you know you've you've walked into my space and i'm going to offer you a cup of tea or a beer or a glass of wine is a, is a natural reflex and you're probably just a, a decent human thinking about other people's welfare necessarily rather than your own so yeah i agree 100 percent. so um back to the framework so the, the framework that you're talking yes. about the restorative restaurant framework yes um three elements the first of which actually makes a great deal of sense and and, and when i was reading about it so the first bit relates around demolition and almost yes. just kind of looking looking at the premises initially and working out yeah, what, what are we going to take out? What are we going to do with it? Would you say, A, that's that's all too often missed? And uh, I suppose, yeah, what, what, what are you looking at under that? Yeah, very much so. I, I think we, particularly as designers, we're often guilty if we want to come in and avoid any compromise on this beautiful new design coming in. And we don't want to work with the gifts of a, of a site. Um, we want to strip it out, not deal with the headaches, make it easy, and then just do something brilliant which is partly an ego-driven thing. Uh, the part of the problem with design is, is that design is effectively a, a confidence game. You know, you're a, it's a very arrogant business to say there's a new thing that needs to be done and I'm the person to, to, to bring this magical thing into life. So to be a good designer, you can't really operate with any self-doubt because you're making these creative decisions all the time about the way the world should be. Unfortunately, that means that a lot of designers who are very good at that move from confidence into arrogance and ego and therefore it's kind of the opposite of what um hospitality that can happen with chefs sometimes as well it can can't it yeah (laughs) generally men too i mean let's be honest it's mainly it's you know men are awful at at, at that whole (laughs) that whole piece um but yeah i think for us it does start if you want to try and create circular restaurants you need to look at how you can complete the circle so when you go in to take a space the point is, well, before we do anything, you know, the most sustainable thing you can do is do nothing. Yeah. Do, do literally do nothing and you'll not be 
you know, making a, a dent in, in the world. Yeah. Um, but if you are going to go in, whether it is into a, a, a shell or something that used to be a shop that you're converting to a restaurant or it was a previous restaurant and you're trying to convert it into a different restaurant, you need to go in and actually audit what's there. Um, and that's both intangible kind of rational terms oh what ovens have they got can we reuse them and intangible like what's what's the quality of the space here um how, how is the building made what can we what gifts have we got of this site that we can actually celebrate and then when you've worked out what is going to work with your concept because that is another massively important thing i would say is that you can't well let me put this another way the most sustainable restaurant is the one that's still here in 10 years time. So you need to create an experience for your customers that is hugely successful, but you make profit as a company that you can do good things with, but ultimately you're still here serving customers in 10 years time. Because if you put in the most eco hemp clad concept and stick it into Mayfair and it lasts six months, it doesn't matter what your goals were, you weren't successful. So all that time and energy is gonna go in the skip probably because someone else is gonna put something in suitable for Mayfair. So you need to make sure that whatever you do create is in tune with the DNA of the experience and the brand you need to be successful there. So there's a kind of, there's a bit of an equation to work out there. You keep what you can, but you need to not compromise the overall why you're actually bothering to do this. But then when you decide that things, some things need to change and come out, you then have to have an active strategy for how you deal with that waste. And that, that's often the bit that gets missed, particularly if you are running fast on a low budget and you aren't working with particularly professional contractors so how do you get rid of that waste you're getting rid of if you've got chairs how can we keep those at the highest value i.e as a chair can we give them to charity can we actually sell them most people won't go through that because there's not a lot of money to be made in it it's an effort but these are the important things we need to do how do we not get rid of that stuff how do we not waste it then you start going down the scale so how do we keep materials at their, their same level we've got stainless steel how can we make sure that's recycled and kept as stainless steel then going down again, you've got downcycling. So how can, okay, we've taken down a brick wall. If you can't reuse the bricks again on site, how can we get them somewhere where they can be turned into you know, rubble in that sense and used elsewhere? And then you get all the way down to the lowest level, which is kind of incineration for energy recovery. You need to think through that and you need to find partners who can, can actually deliver that. And we're still in the process of making sure we have those partners, to be mm. completely honest. Um, but it's, it's, you know, even just talking through that, you can see that there's there's an effort in there that yeah. frankly well it's, it's the same in your home i think isn't it sometimes you're having to clear out of your garage it's a lot easier just to chuck the stuff in the bin or take yeah. it down the tip than it is Absolutely. to put it on ebay or, or, or uh, marketplace or even if it's for free and say can you come around and get it and then you've got to be in and somebody's got to meet and, and it's the same kind of incredibly concept, i've definitely been guilty of that i like an easy life yeah it is Chuck inconvenient it in and i i i don't want to you know to have to do that yeah. so, so my, my personal philosophy is i i lo would love a more simple life where you just say no and i have less yeah. you know less stuff and less less responsibility that's you know that's number one but yeah when you've got it when it's there you've, you've got to deal with it in a responsible way yeah my um, wife's a primary school teacher and primary school kids love you know bright shiny things arts and crafts and you know glitters and paints and pots and stuff and you just you see the amazon guy arriving at the door again with another deli delivery of plastic <laughs> shite and and worry for the future of humanity but now i can tell her there's 90 billion tons or whatever of stuff yeah. it was being extracted from yeah. the earth every year i've tried to be fair and she tells me i can go and live in the shed but i, I agree with you immensely i think i think i i, I get that so then you move on from demolition and it, and it certainly made me think and I was like you know and I go back to you know built and, and refurbed a number of restaurants and, and wondered 
what I would have done differently. I actually get really excited by the idea of reusing as much as you possibly can and almost using sustainability as an excuse because actually yeah. from a cost perspective. You're Exa- like, well, in that instance, the, the, the cost um, has a, you know, can have a very positive effect as well. You know, that can be a very frugal um, approach um, that, that can be sustainable at the same time. So that's the positive side of saving money and, and sustainability, I think, definitely. Yeah. And, and I think for, as designers, we need to take that as a creative challenge. You know, the great creativity comes from working around constraints and True. we need to find better ways to to do that. You know, you can keep the same chairs and go and get them reupholstered. You know, p- people have been doing this. for This isn't new. This isn't magic. People have been doing this for ages, um, but it needs to be done on a larger scale. There need to be systems, you know, for this to happen uh, and, and be the norm. Yeah. It needs to be the normal approach. Um, okay. So stage two, yes. low impact design. Yes. What's a low impact? Yeah, design? and I think this is where the the, the, the framework gets. Not it, no, it, it becomes interesting, and it also starts to diverge a bit because at that point you've probably got different approaches for very different types of restaurant. So if you go in, if you're going into a brand new shell that's been developed in a lovely restaurant area in Kings Cross, that's a blank canvas you can look at many different facets of that design so you can you can have more control over the the equipment that's going in you can look at the the embodied carbon and the energy usage um, you can look at every single thing that comes into that site and you've got you've got much more control whereas in other in other sites if you're refurbing an existing restaurant you've probably got less things that you can actually adjust and and and, and um make a meaningful difference to if that makes sense so the way we look at this sort of five strands to the low impact design section that we look at one is defining your assessment system so how do you want to measure what you're doing and there's the qualitative way which i mentioned scar i think is the best there's also briam and lead but they're really better for new builds and then um, there's the quantitative one where you can look at the carbon footprint if you want to get into assessing that. So that might cost you, you know, £3,000 to look at what the carbon footprint of, be, of your fit-out is going to be. Um, there's another one we're looking at, which is can we measure the tons of life cycle waste measured from a new fit-out, produced by a new fit-out. So we're trying to find a, a quantifiable metric where we can start measuring the circularity, which is a bit of a tricky nebulous thing to to get to um and then actually there is a third way of looking at sustainability um and i sort of touched on it earlier as a in a sort of flippant way but there is a narrative part of um sustainability and that is the storytelling part like this chair is from a local church and i'm actually i am still interested in that part because i think we need to remember that sustainability isn't just about doing the right thing but it's about communicating with your customers and there is a simplicity to someone sitting on a chair and knowing where it's come from that communicates much better than oh hey we our carbon footprint is reduced by 16 percent and actually we've got scar gold um okay what what does that what does that mean i don't understand tell me a story um so i think you look at how you're going to capture and assess and communicate your sustainable story and then you look at operational carbon i.e what carbon emissions are produced in the running of your restaurant on a day-to-day basis Uh, and that would be through water electricity gas so you're looking at energy efficient equipment whether you can use heat recovery systems to capture heat from the extract hood to 
to, to, to kind of power the heating systems, whether you can capture rainwater and use that in grey water systems for the toilets, um, or you can do all of that. And then you look at embodied carbon, i.e. what is the footprint of stuff we're getting in here? Do, are we shipping plywood from China? Or can we get some material locally that's going to have a much lower footprint? Does it have recycled content in it? Um, you know, many, many different, different things within there. Um, and then there are two things on the design side. One, flexibility, which I'm increasingly becoming quite passionate about. I think we need to design buildings and spaces that are able to adapt to future changes. If anything, that's been highlighted. Yeah, like a anything. pandemic. Yeah, yeah, like a pandemic. Yeah, exactly. That's a good example. Yeah. Um, we need to, and as designers, we've, we've never been massively keen on this because I always use the example of, um, of a pen knife at this point is that if you want something to do many different functions like a pen knife inevitably it's going to end up with a slightly generic design it's going to look like a pen knife right and and the whole point of restaurant design what we're trying to do is to create differentiation so as a designer a few years ago i would have said look let's try and get the minimum amount of flexibility in here that you can get a good operation but that we can get the purest customer experience and I've sort of changed my mind on this recently and realized that actually, no, no, our job as designers is to creatively find ways to build flexibility in. So we're sitting here with some booth seats inside your restaurant. I bet you'd love if you could do something different with those. Um, I'd love to press a button, yes. depending on who was coming in the door, whether you were a table of talk to, a yeah. group of six, whether you've got kids, no kids, and literally things would disappear and, and appear out of the floor by magic yeah. and reconfigure themselves. So yeah, flexibility is key in, in restaurants. Just time of the day, and this comes up on the podcast a lot, but you know how, how a restaurant feels at eight in the morning for breakfast service and how it feels for cocktails at yeah. 10 o'clock at night is completely different. So yeah. we do that through music and through lighting, but you've got to be careful, you know, historically you could get away with just having an evening cocktail bar and that was fine but with business rates and and all the costs that come with it now and fit out costs and everything you've probably got to sweat that asset a lot more than you have the margins are so much smaller so yeah flexibility is key for many reasons i suppose yeah i think so and then and part of that as well is the, the idea around flexibility goes it's, it goes beyond self-interest it's not just about making sure that the restaurant can can flex within its operation it's trying to think about how we are sort of almost stewards of the buildings we're in, how we're guardians of those and leaving them in a way for the next person. You know, you're not going to be here in 50 years' time, probably. But uh, Lucky to be here in five days if Boris has his <laughs> way, to be honest. But uh, <laughs> that's, that's a whole other topic. But, but those questions, when we're talking about flexibility, and, and this is where I find it interesting because we need to have more discussions with landlords. What are landlords creating with their buildings? You know, how are they uh, in allowing for as much flexibility for their, their, their tenants coming in? Um, how can we how can we create services and service points that allow for more change in the future if you want to move your kitchen somewhere else? I don't know if that's possible at the moment. So this is, these are kind of questions we're asking and trying to mm. find out the answer. Um, and then alongside flexibility is the question of layout design. So that's kind of obvious, but how can we design the layout in a way that maximizes um, the, the sustainable quality? So how do we maximize natural daylight? How do we build in lobbies to make sure you get a thermal break between inside and outside? Um, how can you, um, you know, put the uh, layout, the, the, the kitchen, so that you're keeping the, the refrigeration as far away from the cook line as possible, so things aren't working so hard? Yeah, all of those questions mm. need to be need to be looked at. Yeah, no, um, they're, it's, it, they're really good points. I've I've always thought with this one, we we built this restaurant. Uh, is it now 12 years ago i think and you know the, the backdrop to you at the moment is is the ocean and and you know we're we're maybe six 
foot, maybe a little bit less above sea level. And I've been constantly, and, and you know, we thought about the environment immediately and, and things have moved on and there's clearly so much more we can do. But you're right, that, that sort of idea of being a custodian is that it's, it's highly likely, you know, that the sea levels will rise and this, and this place won't be here. So we have a permanent reminder just you know 50 foot away of the fragility i suppose of what of what we do and that if we don't get this right you know this restaurant will be washed away and lots of people won't be able to sit here and enjoy a nice icy cold beer over overlooking the ocean well, let alone all the other problems that will come i'm sure with, you can have a floating here. restaurant concept yeah. for well, your ground floor here can't yeah, you yeah that's that's true yeah you're right actually we've got very instagrammable we'll be we'll be fine but yeah that, those reminders and, and i do agree with what you were just saying there around the, the sort of scar and lead and some of these big you know, initiatives that, that, that you need to buy into, they often do feel like they're better placed with big corporates. And I sort of get it. If, if M&S come out and say, look, we're going to reduce our, our you know, environmental footprint by 12% or something like that, I'll just go, okay, they're big. That's probably an important thing. You know, it's probably good. But actually... In restaurants, we're used to telling stories. We want to tell you about yeah. the, the farmer who you know rears your pigs. We want to tell you about the, the vineyard in the you know the south of Italy that makes this incredible wine. We we kind of we're, you know we're predisposed to have these conversations. So if we can tell you that you know the table you're sat at, especially here by the ocean, if we can say look, we went and collected five tons of plastic rubbish from the ocean and then turned it into this table that you're sat yeah. at, people will get that and they'll go, oh, that's that's really really cool. Whereas yeah, if I go, I've got a, a scar gold, it'll it'll be less relevant, I suppose. Does it feel like some of those that certain clients you work with would would want the kind of almost internationally accredited thing to put on the wall but actually some of the Definitely. some of the independents would, would and I think rather. it's really interesting we've been spending quite a lot of time thinking about this recently as we're sort of building the, the framework and the approach and um, thinking about the difference between narrative qualitative and and quantitative very long words um, approaches I, I think it is horses for courses I, mean, I was on a, a workshop last week with um intercontinental hotel group and you know they've got you know six thousand hotels you know ridiculous numbers um and any conversations there are immediately around roi how much is it going to cost and in a way i think it's just natural that the bigger a company goes reality for a big company exists on the spreadsheet you can't manage it any other way so the finance director needs to see what a number is and how that's going to be affected in the bottom right hand corner of the spreadsheet that that's the only way that they can capture the reality of a big business that big so therefore you know they talk about science-based targets and they talked about carbon because you know it's something measurable and no one can argue against that you know the critics can't 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 argue against it but for us, I mean, we tend to specialise working with people with, you know, one to five, you know, well, five to ten, you know, re restaurant units. And with them, most people, the, the quantifiable metrics are not as important as the qualitative. People that come to us and want to talk about sustainability genuinely care about sustainability. And, and therefore, you're in more of a conversation around the narrative, i.e. what are we doing and why, um, and how we tell that, communicate that to customers. But then the, the assessment of something like a SCAR makes sure that we're holding ourselves to account. And actually, the SCAR doesn't have to be... You can actually do SCAR informally without actually even paying any money to assess it. We now, as default, run SCAR assessments on every single one of our projects we do. Um, and we can do that along with an assessor, and you know, that'll cost like two, three, four grand, depending on the project. Or we can just get it assessed at the end for about 500 quid, or if the client really isn't interested then you know you don't have to get through the assessment but we're using it to hold ourselves to account yeah. on every part so is, is this kind of a list of you know 100 points or whatever is this kind of a framework that you look yeah. at yeah so scar it? is um there's 112 best practice measures and they will cover every part of a potential fit out for example um 
chairs, for example. One of them measures his chairs, and then how many? Uh, there's kind of it's kind of quite black and white, but there's maybe three or four ways you can hit it. You know, have you um, reduced 75% from going to landfill? Um, have you used reclaimed? There's there's different ways of going through the measures, and 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 you either hit them or you don't. Countertops, for example, has it has it been a, is it a reclaimed material? Yes or no. If not, if it's a virgin material, has it got 80% recycled content or higher? Yes or no. So you kind of go through, and then okay. you have to get you will go through and assess your project. So if you're doing a light refurb, you might only have 52 of those measures in scope. Right. You can't do something um, about toilets if your toilets aren't changing. You're not changing anything. Right. Um, and then to get gold, you might need to hit 40 of those, silver 25, bronze 15, right. for example. But they're not behind a paywall. These are fundamentally available. You can see yeah. them, assess them yourself. Yeah, Because it, it's frustrating. I've, I simply I sympathise, and, and Andrew, Stephen, and I have had this conversation a few times around the SRA objectives and, and the fact that he needs to put some of their content behind a paywall because fundamentally it's the members that pay for their existence. Yet their fundamental objective is to make restaurants more sustainable, which clearly isn't isn't a money-making thing. And it's probably similar with stuff like that. So I think the more they can put out just to make a difference, yeah. great. Uh, but then obviously, you know, yeah, it makes sense that some people need to, to pay yeah, in some way. Yeah, and, and that's with our experience. So when you look at things like Briam or so much of this is just so onerous and massive in scale, you need to pay a consultant £5,000 to just yeah. do it. And if you're coming in and refurbish your restaurant, you want to spend 100, 200, 300, whatever you're paying. It's just, it just seems like a crazy amount of overkill. You know, you're doing a brand new development, Brianne makes a huge amount of sense. Um, but yeah, Scar, what we've just found is really interesting. And if anyone wants to know about it, then you know, go and have a look online or get in contact with me and I can, I can certainly give you a quick tour around it. We did some training on it last year to make sure we know what we're doing. And then we spent, I think January or February, we went through every single best practice measure and identified kind of, you know, partners or people that we can do what we'd need to do to deal with all of those so um yeah we've um we've been immersing ourselves in that because it, okay. it's just it's finding a way to hold yourself to account because it's easy to just tell yourself you're being sustainable mm. yeah and no, I, think, I think i think i think that makes a lot of sense so i, I get the middle bit sort of stage yes. two of, of the restorative sort of process of restaurants because that's kind of what we think about i guess you know certainly kit wise and and uh, yeah water usage all that kind of stuff day to day so we've probably thought less about it in demolition but the third one i thought was really interesting so this is this uh, end of life aspect yeah. isn't it and i'm like yeah we definitely didn't think no. about that so can you just explain well, and, that and that's suppose? something that's come for us out of looking into the circular economy so if you can imagine this diagram for the restorative restaurant, it is, you know, a circle and there's three arrows going around. The first one is demolition and strip out, as you said. Then the, the middle one is uh, low impact design. And the last one is end of life. Because the whole point is we're trying to create designs and environments that can be you know, stripped out again when they go around the next, the next cycle in a way that is going to keep everything at the highest point in the value chain. So end of life means that we need to design and specify things in a different way. We need to design them so that they can be disassembled. Because, for example, if you have a, a lovely new countertop you put in and you've sourced a, you know, a great material, it's 80% recycled content, it's local labor's put it in, it's brilliant, you know, you've done good. But then you glue it to a piece of wood. Well, that, that now isn't sustainable at the end of the life. What, you're not gonna, if you're not going to get those apart, that's going to go in the skip because you've created what the cradle-to-cradle people call a monstrous hybrid. Right. So... So, so we need to look at how we design things in a way that they can be taken apart. And then there's there's two different, they call it nutrient streams. There's technical and biological I nutrients. That. So I that was my next question. What do you mean by biological yeah, and technical I know. nutrients? I, it, again, yeah. there's, there's a great book called Cradle to Cradle, but it's quite, it's quite 
dense. Um, and Luckily, you're going to summarise it in two sentences. Well, there you, you go. <laughs> um, if <laughs> the biological nutrients are anything that would naturally break down into the earth. Okay. So if you think of you know, wood, paper, that sort of stuff. That, that will, that will dig, how, that many will how many chapters was that in the book? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Technical nutrients are more synthetic man-made things. So we're talking about metal. We're talking about um, you know, plastics, I suppose, as well. Um, so the idea is that you want to create things. If you're thinking of a chair, you know, if you've got um, you know, a metal base and timber, timber slats on it or upholstery, all of that needs to be able to come apart in such a way that it can be reused again at the highest value. You want the metal to be able to be used as metal, ideally on legs for a chair, rather than something lower down. You know, so much of recycling, unfortunately, is actually downcycling. We're moving something that was higher value you know, if you have a lo lovely brick wall, for example, and then you take down that brick wall and it gets bashed up into rubble and used in aggregate in a road, that is not keeping this crafted thing at a high value. It's, it's bringing it down the chain. And, and ultimately, that, that is not a sustainable, sustainable system. So, so, yeah, we need to design for end of life. And part of it is designed for disassembly. It also puts a huge amount more onus on us as designers to look at what happens to materials at the end of their life. Are there manufacturer take-back schemes um, on uh, fabric that's used or carpets that are used on a floor? Um, are there ways that we can definitely be sure they can be reused again? So, so for us, it's, it's asking tougher questions um, on how they can be, how we can make sure they are being used properly at the end. And this is going to be a tough bit, to be honest. Mm, um, it is. I think fascinating. Brilliant. Really cause, good, cause but that's, really that's, That is the gap that exists between the end of one thing and the beginning of the next yeah. and, and almost how much of that becomes changes in in recycling you know i look at our waste and how you know how separate it is funny enough we, we just changed waste contractors and my finance uh, financial controller pinged out a little email yesterday saying that the new waste contractors have said if we want to go and have a look around their their sort of facility we're more than welcome and i think she was sort of half joking and yeah. certainly for most of the team they would have gone go and go look around where the rubbish goes but straight away i was like i 100 percent want to yeah, go because yeah. the more i can understand about yeah how do they process our waste the more impact we can have on you know what are we actually putting in the bin so at the moment i'm guessing if you chuck a chair in the tip it's probably cost prohibitive for someone there to, to unstitch the upholstery and, exactly. and, and separate it but if it was if it was designed in a way with a bit of velcro or something that you could undo it and shut one in one pot and one in the other that would be brilliant but it still is going to need somebody you know at some point it, it's such a joint there's so many people involved i suppose and it's going to be such and, a joint and that's approach. why for us we've realized the great thing about circular economy and also the tough thing about circular economy is that you cannot do it on your own yeah. it's collaborative it has to be collaborative because you need to create ecosystems where this stuff can circulate around that means there's a huge amount of opportunities for interesting things. So there are many ways of start, you start to look at it when you look at things from a circular perspective. So you start thinking, well, hang on a sec. Why do, why do, we, why do people own chairs? What, 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 there are a few furniture people we're talking to where they want to look at the idea of moving to a subscription economy. So they, they then have the responsibility to deal with those chairs for their whole life. So you then you rent the chairs off of them they're responsible for the maintenance, looking after them. And if you go bust or you change them, whatever, they're responsible to come and get those chairs and then they will take them back and they will use those chairs in a way to, to re-upholster them, fix them, break them down and get their next set of products out. So it's really interesting when you, look at, when you start looking at the circular aspect, you, you come up with some slightly different business models. Mm. You know, the whole point of subscription economy could be a really interesting way of of looking at these things in a, in a different manner. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it does require 
you know so many people but hopefully you know having conversations like this just just inspires uh more and more people to think about it i suppose with a bit of luck doesn't it um I've also heard you talk about the sort of, you know, um, Simon Sinek's book, The Infinite Game, and trying to sort of um, you transpose that infinite philosophy into design and into hospitality. So, so is, is that anything different to what you've already said? What's, what's this sort of concept of infinite, I suppose? Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I, I, I did philosophy at school as one of my subjects, and I, and I, I completely admit to loving the, uh, the world of ideas and thinking about it, but I, I like to bring it straight back to the everyday humanity not some sort of strange abstract piece I, I really like the way Simon Sinek talks about this idea of the infinite game his whole point is that we need to move from this finite mindset of trying to make profit for a quarter and actually look at genuine long-term vision for the health of of, of companies um, and if you take that outside of business I just think it's a really smart way that we as human beings need to look at what we're doing you know you need to have an infinite mindset whereby it is not about can we just make a profit this quarter if you, it was that for me is one of the massive reasons between the, the casual dining crash was that people come on someone's built a restaurant chain where they've got three sites they've sold it to a, to a VC or a VC's come in and they've gone right how do we get our ROI in five years okay great let's grow it to 15 sites okay how are we going to do that quickly how are we going to do it with the least amount of money there's a very singular metric around finance and then everyone's trying to jump through these hoops to, to get those quarterly goals taking on sites maybe with the wrong kind of rent structure um, not running them properly not investing in the right staff training oh how can we cut costs on food okay let's get the quality down um, telling themselves and not getting the quality yeah, I was going to say is that, is that an actual mission <laughs> yeah yeah but you know convincing <laughs> themselves the inevitable and they'll get to 15 and they sell it to another VC that goes great wow this is doing really well okay how can we get this to 45 yeah. and, and, and it's you know nothing's looking beyond the horizon of three to five years yeah. and, and that is the point we need to think beyond ourselves um, you know, as individuals and even as companies and Simon Sinek's point in the Infinite Game is really interesting because he looks at how the best companies are run by people who do look at things beyond themselves you know, Patagonia is a great example in the clothing world um, they, they manage to combine that purpose and profit in, in a way that I find quite inspiring. Um, whether, yeah, well, nice bag. Yeah. Uh, whether, um, just, just pointing at my Patagonia bag for those of you who are, are wondering why we've heard, yeah, it's just gone off, but yeah, go on. Um, whether humanity and human beings on a big enough scale are able to get away from our natural self-interest is, is a very different philosophical question. <laughs> Maybe one beyond this podcast. Yeah. But, um, Do you think? Yeah. yeah. But um, no, I think it's, it's hugely important. And that's why I come back to my own personal philosophy is, say so I'm not an activist I want to get to a point where I make sure I give more than I take and and that that for me is a is a long-term vision beyond self-interest I, I want to live a generous life live in a generous house with my kids eat lovely food travel and see things but I don't want to do that in a way that comes at any other person's expense or our planet's expense because that just doesn't doesn't stack up so yeah that is the infinite game for me. Mm. Yeah. Trying to find a path to make that happen. And and our restorative restaurant framework at OSP is our is our current best way of, of exploring. Yeah. That's good. And I, so I think all of that, love it. It definitely got me thinking and, and thinking about future stuff we've done, like I say, some of our past stuff. But I, I guess with all of this, you can create a really sustainable restaurant that mm. is a shit restaurant. 
mm-hmm. and and that would obviously be stupid. And, and where I was particularly keen and excited to talk to you is that you're clearly a thinker and a reader and and and, and a bit of an obsessive is the is the impression <laughs> I get. And I love obsessives in hospitality. It's full of them. And you know, for those who've listened to other podcasts, whether it be I've got one coming out next week just about salt. You know, I can spend an hour talking about salt or whether it be gin or whatever it might be. But, you know, you're obsessed not just with sustainability, but fundamentally how do restaurants work? What makes a good yes. restaurant a bad restaurant? What, what makes them successful fundamentally yeah. and still be there, like you say? And, and, and I think one of the ways that, that illustrates that, A, obsession, but B, more importantly, this sort of understanding of the, of the intangibles of what makes a restaurant successful or not, uh, was your restaurant odyssey mm, project, mm. pre-pandemic, almost yes. probably pre-you putting that word sustainable yeah, at the top definitely. of your website. What 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 was that about? I suppose first of all. Well, I think when we we really nailed our colours to the mast in terms of being about hospitality design, before we then also nailed it about sustainable hospitality design. I wanted to make sure that we knew everything we possibly could about what makes great restaurants. So yeah, the restaurant odyssey was me. Um, I mean, it's, it's a fantastic I, you know, project yeah. to be doing. Going to a restaurant every two weeks, identify things that I think are the twenty-six best restaurants in London across fine dining and also more casual just going and studying that eating there engaging in the experience mapping out how it felt so there was a, there's a great book by um uh, camilla laura sitwell called bespoke where she talks of the future of hospitality being about personalization and in there she sketches out this experience map these kind of i can't remember if it was 17 points that touch every part of the customer journey and i took that and i adjusted it a little bit and i, I used that as part of my my guide to assess different experiences so you know what makes padella great now, why is there a queue outside Padella all the time? I don't know if you know Padella, you know, just outside Borough Market. Um, I've come to the conclusion that the reason there's a queue outside Padella is because there's a queue outside Padella, which <laughs> starts becoming right. a very uh, yeah, self-reinforcing yeah, piece yeah, of that's logic. That's a circular, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, other, other than that, I actually think the location is great. I think they made a smart move with the massive awning and the very simple, bold branding against a more kind of refined fit out in, in some sense. But anyway, there's, there's lots of other things in there. But so, so for me, yeah, it was trying to analyze the experience and understand why different brands need different things. Mm-hmm. So you start to realize across these 17 points, you don't need to do all of them well to be successful. The higher up you go in terms of Michelin stars and premium experience, you do need to be better at all of these points. And they cover marketing, location choice, um, how your staff service acts, the quality of the food, and obviously the quality of the environment, which is the bit that, that we're most interested in influencing. But it was interesting to see that some of the you know really good ones might skip entirely 50% of these points in the experience, You know, particularly ones where they don't take any bookings, they don't email you beforehand, they don't follow up afterwards, there's, there's, there's none of that. But they've got maybe a great location, fantastic social media presence, and a lot of buzz around them. And then they deliver really good food in a kind of cool environment. Maybe the staff even aren't that good. But there's, there's, some, there's some kind of rough diamond in some of those. So, so that whole project was me trying to analyze what makes these things interesting and realizing that it's a combination of rational and completely irrational factors. And that the irrational thing is a thing that really fascinates me now because you get into the question of behavioral science and behavioral economics. So my favorite book that I think I reference all the time is one called Alchemy by Rory Sutherland. So that the power of ideas that don't make sense. And I'll just, I've given this story a few times before, but he talks about this, um, this coffee shop that he drove past a few times. And the two previous owners, they had both failed. They had opened, hadn't done very well, failed after six months. And then this third guy opens and he's driving past and he goes, oh, okay, another one. I hope, he's, hope he does okay. I hope he does good. 
Um, and sure enough, six months later, the guy's still doing well. So he's like, okay, I wonder, I wonder, what, is, wonder what he's doing different. And he drove past. He hadn't been in at this point. Um, he drove past and he just saw one morning he's bringing all this heavy outdoor furniture out and all these, these barriers and it's you know, quite elaborate exterior seating, much more than the other people. It's clearly an effort. It's clearly not you know, a value-engineered solution. He could do something much easier for himself. And that's kind of the point. That's the conclusion he comes to is... As a, as a human being, you walk past and you go, oh, wow, he, yeah, he really cares about putting that furniture out. I bet his coffee's good. Because if he cares that much about doing that that he didn't need to do, I bet he doesn't cut corners inside either. Yeah. And so that, for me, really sums up the power of understanding the signalling of what we do as designers and as restaurateurs. I think everything comes down to the signals you give out to your potential customers about what you do. And that's why very often the things that we think are unnecessary are precisely necessary because of that. Mm. Precisely. It's it's fascinating. I talk to my team about this and I'm a bit of a fan of cycling. So so David Brailsford and his aggregation of marginal gains, you know, Mm. these tiny, tiny, tiny little incremental changes. And and it's so hard in hospitality. And I'm saying this for, for donkey's years, you know, is that, is that we don't know which of these little details, you know, the logo on the toilet door or, you know, how something's worded on the menu and that mm. customer journey from when they see the website to when they pull up in the car park. You know, no idea really which ones of those make a difference, but I've always been utterly convinced that every tiny little touch point mm. um, does make a difference. So um, when you were on that journey then, did you get to all, was it 26, did you say? Uh, yeah, it was 26. I think I think I didn't do all of them. I might have, I might have stopped at around 22. Okay. Did the tax man look at your sort of receipts and go, <laughs> <laughs> come on, David. You know? no, no, yeah, justifying it to my business yeah. partner saying, it's really important. Yeah, uh, come on. Research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But was there anything, I suppose, memorable um, from that, from that sort of journey through those restaurants that, that where something clicked, either either really good or, or really bad, that sort of had an influence, I suppose, on, on your sort of future designs? I think... It's interesting. I mean, I've, I've decided that 90% of people don't know how to design toilets properly, which is a separate thing. I don't know why people stop designing when they get to the toilet. Or there's an obsession with putting a single spotlight in the ceiling, which you get horrific, you know, bohemian rhapsody shadows on your face. I, I, anyway, anyway, that's a kind of separate pet hate of mine around, around the, most toilets aren't very well designed. I think it was really... The takeout was the sheer complexity. And actually, there's a funny thing when when you become more of an expert i mean whether i call myself that i don't know that's for other people to say but if you consider yourself on that journey to become an expert you realize you you let go of a need to know all the answers because you realize that actually it's not about gathering the answers what you're looking to do is gather the right toolkit of questions to unpick a certain situation does that make sense so you you know realizing that actually you don't need to you know, I first thought, well, you need to hit as many of these experience points as possible on a kind of level five out of five, and that will be your guarantee of success. But actually, it's not about that. You need to do that at the higher end because at the higher end, the consistency of a premium experience is really important. If you've got, um, you know, cricket um, in, you know, in London, it's about really great food. It's cool. It's a good location. The design's nice. The staff are friendly. That's, that's enough. That, 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 that's enough. Um, and it's about finding the right things doing the right things well um, with a sort of sincerity so it was really for me it was an exercise in understanding 
the complexity and having a kind of developing my own intuition around what is going to work and not work. Mm. Um, but yeah, I don't think um, yeah, there's no there's no easy t-shirt slogan answers that come out of it it's the the art of the restaurateur rather than the science of a yeah. restaurateur for a reason i suppose and I, and I do think it is fascinating and frustrating because you can sit in one venue you know they can be on the same road and you can sit in one and go why is this one working and that one yeah. not working and it is it's really tricky because you take this fairly sort of not even fairly very comprehensive uh, approach i suppose I know, I know one of the things that's important to you is you know, when you sit down, you, basically somebody doesn't generally just come to you and say, hi, David, I want this, design it. You sit with them and, and your first question is another Simon Sinek thing, I guess, is why? Isn't yeah. It? It's why it's like, I, I've heard again, you say the world doesn't need any more restaurants. So why do you want to create this one? Why do you need to understand that before you can design them a restaurant? Um, I think, I mean, that's a, that's a very interesting question. Why do I want to understand that? I think I'm naturally... Um, a big picture guy than a detail guy and I'm leaning into that so Brenda my business partner is, is an amazing wonderful human being and a great architect and naturally has this affinity with the detail and the question and we kind of we kind of informally split our roles I'm the director of making things happen and he's the director of doing it well and I think there's a the kind of nice dynamic with that um, but I just think there's so much stuff that gets done without someone actually asking the question, why are we doing this again? And it's easy to get lost in that detail as you go along. Whereas for me, I'm a, I'm a quite, I've realized I'm quite a simple soul and I just want to know what is the point of us doing this? So, for example, I met with a potential client last week and we're looking at they're halfway through this refurb and the project. They wanted a second design opinion. Is this good? Is it going to work? And taking a step back, there is a, it's in a bank and they want to redo their catering offer internally and they're really keen on sustainability so this is you know, potentially a really good match um, they've got these designs and my first question is why are your employees going to want to eat here because you're in London there's a lot of cool stuff outside and no one can answer that question so, so if you can't answer that question how do you know whether what you're building is even going to compare against that really simple answer I mean you, have, you don't have an answer so how do you know if you're going to be successful and, and I think often the success of a project needs to be defined with this sort of emotional or vision question it's not oh we need to improve our margin by 10% so therefore we want to um, you know refit this part of a restaurant to in encourage and increase spend or you know, average transaction value but that's not that's not a goal that's not a vision that's not getting anyone excited what is what is the bigger point here of what we're doing and then we can use that to assess whether the project is successful or not. Mm. And I think that's really important. You know, I, I say I'm, I like a simple page in a presentation with one point that says what we're trying to achieve mm. that you can't run away from. It, that, that, that makes you worth uh, a small fortune in the fact that the, the failure rate in hospitality is huge. It is. You must get asked then, or, you, or, or with all of that, that knowledge, and again, you know, the, all of the reading you do and your obsessive nature, and it, while still admitting that you know, there's an art here and therefore you can't answer all the questions, you must get told the why from some people and see what they want to do and go, I, I think it's a bit of a crap idea. Do you, do you therefore it, yeah, turn it away or, or do you give some advice and do they listen? Because people who've got an idea and have been working on it for a long time, probably the reason the failure rate is so high, they're yeah. pretty adamant they're going to do it anyway. How do you manage that complexity? I, I, think, it, I think it's very interesting. I, I don't think I have all the answers for that. I think for me, our decision, well, 
I say our decision to work with someone, that sounds massively arrogant. Like we've got some, you know, queue of people desperate to, to work with us and we're picking and choosing clients, which is not necessarily the case quite yet. Um, but I, I think we want to work with good people trying to do good things. And I'm, the important thing is that we give advice that, that has integrity to it. And if someone is doing something and I don't think it's going to be a good idea, I will happily tell them that and, and why I think that is the case. But if they want to carry on and try and do, make that happen, then that's fine. Whether we're the right partners for that or not, I don't know. Um, you know, for example, this this project in the bank. So they've said, can we adjust the design? And I've said, look, I don't think I can add value at this point. I think you should carry on with what you're doing. And after Enjoy it's done, your empty restaurant. You're, you're, <laughs> you're currently mid car crash. I'm not yeah. going to say that, but no, no, that's no. kind of what you're doing. Oh, and maybe there's a point where we come back afterwards and ask the why and how questions. Okay. And you know, rather than me try and jump in and, and yeah. make something happen here. And I, I just think... I, I hope they've thought about how they're going to dismantle that restaurant at the end. Well, yeah. that, that's going to be one of my bits of feedback. Yeah, make sure it's uh, designed yeah. for disassembly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> quite <laughs> I'm quickly. I'm not saying it's bad, yeah. but yeah. make sure you can take it apart afterwards. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think we want to work with people who are trying to do good things and I certainly don't have all the answers and that there are things that ideas that someone might think is a bad I might think is a bad idea that someone else can really make work mm. um, but yeah it is, it is a complex one this, this is where I came back to you made that initial point about um, people that care about sustainability aren't arseholes and, it, and it's that's mainly the main thing for me yeah. <laughs> working with good people that want to do good things and there's there's many different um shades of grey within that you know black and white scale we, we know we, we were working with a client at the beginning of the year um, it was a concept coming over from um, Lebanon uh, got introduced to the client versus by a hospitality consultant we worked with before started the first couple of weeks got a very bad feeling about the client the way they were making decisions the way they were treating people and we, and we kind of resigned and gave him his money back and you know we lost you know, three grand doing that but you've just got a, we, I wasn't going to put our team through working with someone like that who was just didn't seem to have it all together and was making some very irrational um you know mean spirited decisions you've, you've got to try and align yourself with people doing mm, things that match your values right yeah 100 percent. And, I, and I, I often uh, say you know I, I go to meetings with my accountants or solicitors we have a little peer group where we all run different businesses sort of all, all, all directors of our own businesses and the one thing that they've all got that they can do is they can they can choose to work with certain clients and, and how i would love to just line everybody up who wants to come into the restaurant during the course of the day <laughs> and just as they come in just go can, can i just ask are you um are you a bit of a twat <laughs> and if they say oh yeah actually i am brilliant you know there is a harvester just 100 meters along the prom uh, and they would love to look after you uh, and if people do but we can't do that we have to let all these people in and you don't really yeah. find out they're a bit of a twat until they tell you that, that unless you give them their meal for free they're going to go on TripAdvisor yeah. and and uh, write about you but that is another hour actually i haven't done one on uh, yeah, all that kind of. Well, you've interviewed culture. Andrea from uh, Mercato Metropolitano, didn't you? They I have did. like you know a no Coke policy. You like I have do. to check in your, yeah, your other food before yeah. you're allowed in the market. Yeah, it's which true. I just think yeah, is yeah, take out all brands. Hilarious, it's brilliant, isn't it? I love, I, I love, like you say, you know, you you have to have quite a lot of clients queuing up to have the balls to go. Let me check in your bag, and mm. if there's any brands I don't like, basically you're leaving them at mm. the door. But. It's a fine line between the control freak and kind of judging people. Yes, definitely. And, and yeah. having a set of values to support a movement, isn't it? Yeah. I think it, you can only pull it off if it represents something bigger than yourself. It's true. Yeah, and and again, not that I'm inundated with potential sponsors for the podcast, but I recognise I've made my life difficult for <laughs> myself because anybody fundamentally runs a big multinational brand. I'm kind of yeah. like, look, I, I am generally banging the drum and supporting the little guy, but then, mm. you know, that doesn't apply to to necessarily 
where you get your booze from. I've said this before, probably on the podcast, but you know, we, we tried to open a craft beer bar where we had no recognised multinational brands, and uh, for three years, you know, we were sort of pretty adamant that we weren't going to have any. And then I, th- I think I ended up interviewing Charlie McVeigh, and he who, who had the um, was it the draft, draft house, house I think, yeah. yeah. And he was like, yeah, you just need to get over yourself. Um, and in the end, we'd done it before I spoke to Charlie, but I think it was Estrella that we put in, and instantaneously, you know, it, it wasn't just the best selling beer; it, it outsold all of the other beers on on the bar completely mm. and, and the definition of a sustainable restaurant is a restaurant that's still there so yes. sometimes you've just got to compromise and go you know what and actually you know it's a, it's a decent product and it's got a decent backstory Estrella are not sponsoring the podcast although if you're interested Estrella and you're listening <laughs> uh, yours for uh, let's come up with a number right um, finally getting towards the end because um, we should um, you blog a lot why? I do um, I've always liked clarifying my thoughts through writing I enjoy the process um, and I think I'd probably drive my friends, partners, everyone insane if I didn't have an outlet for that. Um, I think it forces you or me to hone my thinking um, and make sure that we are yeah, pushing ourselves on. I, I, I enjoy the process of learning I, I'm kind of addicted to that to that process of learning um, and um, yeah I I just find it a, an outlet for doing that and and hopefully also because I because that is a natural thing for me I mean I've done it since um, GCSE I remember even doing probably my art teacher who just made me start sitting down everything I did I had to then write about why I'd done it and that that you know at 16 or 14 well, that was my the first time I started doing it I thought oh yeah why am I doing that because I'm naturally it's really funny I'm not actually naturally a an artistic creative person you know I went to a grammar school I did four A levels you know English two in philosophy and one in art and throughout my GCSEs and my art and my A levels art was always my worst subject um, and I kept coming I got a B you know it wasn't I was like I was a terrible student I, I but I didn't get it I couldn't my rational brain that understood English literature and the kind of the quirks of that and philosophy and these kind of you know not purely scientific ways of thinking I still couldn't quite understand and grasp the intangible aspects of kind of art and creativity and design and that fascinated me and I've been trying to solve that problem and understand so I've kind of come at this from a very thoughtful perspective because I'm getting to understand why I love creativity and, and the kind of the acts of being creative as a designer. Mm. So yeah, blogging is my um, is my outlet for mm. continuing to think about that. And, and I'm, I'm kind of naturally a connector. I like to find ideas and put them together and understand the, the, the way that they go. So whether it's looking at donor economics and how that offers a, a way to really understand um, economic theory and change it to be more in support of circular economy and how circular economy can actually look to change the design world and how we look at hospitality i like stretching myself to think on that scale um to see what we can learn yeah brilliant i love it and and and, you know it often gets pointed out just that the power of writing and i don't do it enough i go through you know i read a lot of um self-help for want of a better expression but you know books about developing yourself mm. and, and how to sort of i don't know yeah maximize life i suppose and and, and journaling always comes up and, and i've you know, written a couple of bits but it reminded me when i read your blog i thought i could i could almost see the creative journey you were going mm. on because there's some fascinating topics you do it really regularly some really good stuff on there very helpful if you happen to be doing some research for a podcast because you can read <laughs> all about your thoughts uh, in advance but yeah i thoroughly recommend 
uh, that people go and take a look. Talking of which, what's your website? Where should people go to see more of very what's going on in your head? Objectspaceplace.com. Perfect. And right. and on the social, are you you're on? on we're uh, on. Um, I said the business. How about you personally? Yeah, me yeah. personally, the best place to find me is on, on LinkedIn, which is my second home. I, I put a lot of stuff out daily on there of what I'm thinking or seeing or sharing. I mean, the idea is to try and be as helpful as possible to people in hospitality who want to know about sustainability and design. Um, so a lot of the stuff that goes on there doesn't make it onto our blog because that's like a daily sharing platform for me and connecting people and I, I kind of enjoy that. So yeah, just connect with me, search for David Chenery on LinkedIn. I'll be the, the smiling one. Um, and uh, yeah, go yeah. from there. Not, not, not behind a mask. Um, perfect. Look, thanks for doing what you do uh you know I, I love this industry because of its diversity the point of this podcast was never about just interviewing chefs or operators you know there's so many uh elements it's why it's the humans of hospitality it doesn't matter if you're a if you're a farmer you know distiller now design the all of these entwine and, th- and this is why i suppose you know with what's going on at the moment and, and the pandemic and how hard hospitality has been hit when you think of all the knock-on lives you know whether it be the fisherman or the egg farmer or so many people are entwined in what is such a huge sector and, and probably you know for me the point on being on planet earth is to you know break bread have a glass of wine or have a coffee with someone um so you know well done for being brave enough to stand up and say that not only we're going to do that but we're going to do that with this backdrop of sustainability which i think is fantastic and more than anything just for you know because you give it a decent amount of thought a bit of a framework and a bit of clarity is really helpful because we all we all know we want to be more sustainable but actually by by putting some sort of some meat on those bones so to speak uh yeah you really got me thinking when i was doing the research yesterday and i, and I hope that a lot of other people listening uh you know get something out of it as well so thanks for doing what you do keep banging that drum and uh yeah we'll catch up again in the future great uh, thanks i really appreciate that that's uh that's good to hear that's that's what we're doing it for to try and make a difference and help people bridge the gap rather than just say yeah here's this crazy goal <laughs> so yeah the journey continues keep being crazy all right thank you david there you go interesting right david's really been giving this a great deal of thought on all of our behalves and saving us a huge amount of investigation and research i will put the links to his website and social channels so you can go and read more and sign up to his very informative and comprehensive blog head over to humansofhospitality.co.uk and click on episodes where you'll find the show notes that accompany this conversation and whilst you're there sign up for my weekly newsletter and a little reminder will appear in your inbox just once a week letting you know a few details on this week's guests and if you enjoyed the chat and fancy donating a few quid to keep this podcast on the air don't forget there's options for that on the website as well via the patreon page or head over to paypal.me forward slash mark crib right i'll be back next monday have a good week